Let me pray for us as we begin, asking that God would help us to understand what his word is saying to us. Father, we remember how this book begins and the Lord said, and so we thank you that you are a God who loves to speak. Help us please to understand what Numbers 19 is about. Help us to see why it matters. Father, we long that you would you would apply these words to our hearts this morning in your son's name and for his glory. Amen. About 10 years ago now, um, in the journal Science, uh, there was a, a study done, um, which some say was pretty groundbreaking, and it was a couple of researchers, and they said they'd found a link between external outward cleanliness and inner moral cleanliness. That is, people who felt a guilt about something, something they had done or said or, or thought or typed, as part of the experiment, were drawn to cleansing products, towards different cleansing products, indeed cleansing products that befitted the act that they had undertaken. So if they had spoken bad things against someone, then they were drawn to mouthwash, if they had typed bad things, they were drawn to, to hand wipes. It's a study that's had some later criticism in, in years to come, but the concept seems to be solid. The idea's actually got a name, though. It, it's, to be, it's been coined the Lady Macbeth effect. And for those of us maybe not so familiar with the play by Shakespeare or haven't looked at it since GCSE or O-levels, some of you... Just a reminder, Lady Macbeth is one of Shakespeare's most complicated, complex characters. She's obsessive, even. She, she's immorally ambitious and driven to do things. In fact, so much that she, she prods her husband to murder Scotland's king. And then she deludes herself into believing a little water will clear us of this deed, she says. But as the play goes on, here's the thing. The repeated hand-washing, the ritual cannot cleanse her of this guilt that she feels inside. It's mounting, it's consuming, it's all-encompassing. She can't shed it. And by Act 5, the stubborn bloodstains have driven the illegitimate queen to, to madness and then suicide. Out damned spot, she famously says, wringing her hands to remove this hallucinated bloodstain. And you see, this journal article found a connection between, if you like, inner and outer cleanliness or, or uncleanliness. It was something more, more than metaphorical. Shakespeare was onto something as he wrote Macbeth. There's something in us, isn't there, that, that, that knows when we do something or, or don't do something, or even sadly something that's done to us, we can feel dirty on the outside. Like we need to be washed. It's a phenomenon in many world religions. Think of Muslims in this area, in our city, who undertake ritual washings before they pray. They washing each hand and mouths, nose, faces, right arms, left arms, hair, ears, right foot, left foot. Think of Hinduism, a mass pilgrimage to the Ganges. In February, February 2013, 30 million devotees gathering to bathe at the Ganges, hoping to be cleansed from a lifetime of sins. The largest single gathering of a group of people in one place at one time, ever. 
hoping to cleanse themselves from their sins. I think it's a daily reality for many people as well. Perhaps people in here, perhaps people we rub shoulders with, people we walk past in the streets, a feeling of dirtiness, uncleanness, whether past actions or words or experiences, and people carry around with them this lifetime of dirt. Proverbial Lady Macbeth, shutting away behind closed doors that we don't particularly want to open, thank you. They don't just know it, they feel it. It's the reality for many. Maybe that's you, maybe you're here just kind of peeking in on Christian things, looking in through the door, through the window, trying to work out what it's all about. Or or maybe even you're a regular and you've been here for decades. And you're aware you have a past. You're aware you have skeletons in there that nobody else knows about. And at times that feeling of dirt, that uncleanness can be almost all-consuming. It can drive you to despair. If that's the case, if you're someone who feels like that, believe it or not, this slightly obscure chapter in Numbers, chapter 19, a passage about killing a red cow, I think is a passage for you. It's a passage for me. It's a passage about God making people clean. Perhaps as Charlie read it, you notice that clean word coming up again and again and again. It's it's over 30 times in 22 verses. It's about a people who are not clean being made clean again. Maybe we scratch our heads and we press pause and you say, hang on, hang on, how does this work? I'm not there, I'm not then. I've been taking notes through these numbers series. I know that I'm not a nomadic people walking on my way through the wilderness to the promised land, being provided for by God and led along, along by him. How does, this, how does this sacrifice work? And anyway, when was the last time we, we sacrificed an animal on a Sunday morning? I haven't done that in my, my living memory. How can this be a passage for people like us in our situation? And that's a great question. I think it's something that people often get muddled about. Because here's something that we metaphorically do. I have a book here, just slightly less than randomly picked from my bookshelves. And I think here's something we metaphorically do with the Bible. We, we rip it in half. And pretty much we get rid of the first half. The stuff that we find a bit confusing and not so relevant and a bit hard work and we kind of scratch our heads and, and we just focus in on this second half Because it seems to be a bit nicer and the God in there seems to be a bit more friendly. Problem is, we start to read the second half and we don't quite know what's going on. We've joined the story halfway through and we don't quite get what we're reading. It makes some sense, but there are some really confusing bits. And just as you would with a novel, you arrive halfway and you say, well, who are the main characters and what's the plot and where is this narrative going and what's the story so far? And so you see, we do away with the first half of the Bible, with the Old Testament, at our peril. Because we don't have the structure or the shape or the framework or the the concepts or the ideas, really, to understand what's going on in the second half. Frankly, it's one of the reasons we're in numbers at the moment. Because it helps us grasp and appreciate more of what it means to be a believer, an authentic believer, to, to live as a frustrated people, having been rescued and saved and secured, but we've not arrived yet. 
We're with the people of God who have been rescued and saved and secured from Egypt, but they're not in the promised land. We've been rescued, saved, secured by the Lord at the cross, but we've not been, we've not arrived at the new heavens and the new earth yet. It's salvation accomplished, you remember, but not consummated. Or what it means to live as a people with God on a journey. A people who need to explore the dangers of grumbling or a people who easily forget the, the blessings of the future. Or even a people who need to appreciate the Lord Jesus who, who obeyed where the people of God didn't obey. Who was faithful where the people of God were not faithful. And so you see, to, to just to pick up a book halfway through means means we kind of miss what's going on in the second half. And so as we read this sacrifice in Numbers 19, it's been my prayer this week, as I have found, that we would be even more thankful for the Lord Jesus as we recognize his death on the cross in our place. Because it's given us a framework to better understand his death on the cross in our place. So let's jump into it. What I hope to do, basically, is to retell the ritual and as we do that, just to bring out a number of aspects, um, maybe you sort of drifted as Charlie was reading, I want us to focus in on a few unusual aspects in the, in the kind of Old Testament sacrifice scheme of things. This is an unusual sacrifice in Numbers 19. But I take it those, those unique things in there are deliberate. They're there for us to latch onto. They're there for a reason. And then we'll see how one of the um, New Testament writers, I think, focuses in on passage like this and shows us why Jesus matters so much. So have a glance down with me. If you've lost it, we're page 156 I'm in the Bible, Numbers 19. And I'm going to read to us again um, from verse 2 to verse 6. <coughs> this is a requirement of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the Israelites to bring you a red heifer without de defect or blemish that was never been under a yoke. Give it to Eleazar the priest. It's to be taken outside the camp and slaughtered in his presence. Then Eleazar the priest is to take some of its blood on his finger and sprinkle it seven times towards the front of the tent of meeting. While he watches, the heifer is to be burned. It's hide and flesh and blood and intestines. The priest is to take some cedar wood, hyssop and scarlet wool and throw them onto the burning heifer. Yeah, that's enough just to latch onto at the start. A couple of fascinating things just to zoom in on. I think this is, un this is unique about this sacrifice. And the first is the color red. Did you spot that? As far as I can make out, this is the only place where you get a red heifer, a red cow, specified and sacrificed in the Bible. It's to be one without blemish, a perfect red heifer, but... The redness in the sacrifice is more than just the red color of the cow, because you get cedar wood, and that is red. You get scarlet wool, and that is red. And indeed, in verse 5, you get the blood of the cow, and that uniquely, again, is burnt here too. This is to predominantly, unusually, be a red sacrifice. And then you combine it with hyssop, you throw that on, so that burns, hyssop was a at least in Bible times, a plant of cleansing and purification. So it's red. Okay, latch onto that one. Another unusual aspect, verse 3. Do you see that the cow is to be slaughtered outside the camp? 
which again is very unusual because normally it would be in the tabernacle before the Lord. That's where the sacrifice happens. But here it's outside the camp. It's a place of disgrace, a place of uncleanness, a place of dishonor. On the way past, it's not that unusual, but it always strikes me as well that verse 7, we need to not miss the fact that having done his duty, the priest needs to wash and to cleanse himself because the act of sacrifice makes him unclean. Isn't that striking? He becomes unclean so that others might become clean. We'll come back to that. So you've got this fire going on, various elements being burnt. You've got a a red cow, you've got cedar wood, you've got hyssop. You've got blood, all kinds of stuff. And then if, you, you, if you've experienced fire before, um, what you're left with is ash, verse 9. Verse 9, a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer, put them in a ceremonially clean place outside the camp. They're to be kept by the Israelite community for use in the water of cleansing. It is for purification from sin. Verse 10, the man who gathers up the ashes of the heifer must also wash his clothes. He too will be unclean till evening. This will be a lasting ordinance both for the Israelites and for the foreigners residing among them. So do you see, you're left with these ashes, presumably red ashes to some extent, there to make this water of cleansing, which is for the purification from sin, which is interesting because verse 9, again, this is the only mention of sin in the chapter in verse 9. You can look hard and you won't find any more mentions. But it doesn't feel like a chapter about sin. It feels more like a chapter about death. It's to do with corpses and bones and graves and that kind of stuff. So so why does he say, this is verse 9, the water of cleansing for the purification from sin? What's going on now? I take it because sin and death go hand in hand. And for this wilderness generation, in their context, in their wanderings, that will be a very stark, painful daily truth. So just sweep over 11 to 16 with me and just notice this language of death that clusters around those verses. Verse, seven, uh, sorry, verse 11, whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. Verse 14, This is the law that applies when a person dies in a tent. Verse 16, anyone out in the open who who touches someone who's been killed by a sword or someone who's died a natural death or anyone who touches a human bone or a grave will be unclean for seven days. And then verse 18, here's what you do about it. Then a man who's ceremonially clean to take some hyssop, dip it in the water, sprinkle the tent and all the furnishings and the people who are there. He must sprinkle anyone who has touched a human bone or a grave or anyone who's been killed or anyone who's died a natural death. This is all about death. And to put it starkly, this is a generation of death in numbers. Do you remember this first generation, the census at the start of the book? We've not reached chapter 26 yet for the second census, the second generation. We're we're still at the first generation. Remember from last week and from the kids' slot, these are the guys who didn't trust the Lord. These are the guys who who get to the land and they focus on the giants rather than they focus on the Lord and that he can provide for them. They said they would rather die in the desert, so the Lord said, okay, then you'll have it. 
And all but two of the adults, all but Joshua and Caleb, will indeed die in the desert. So do you see, just imagine it, every time, every single time you shed tears and you feel pain because of, of the death of a loved one, every time you mourn, every time you come into contact with a corpse, with someone who's died, it won't just be a time to mourn, it will be a horrible time of remembrance because you will remember your lack of trust and your lack of obedience and your lack of listening to the Lord. Maybe in their minds, each time they go back to the edge of the promised land again. They think, if only we'd have trusted the Lord. If only we hadn't sinned against him. And so each time, you've got death and sin entwined. Actually, it's the story of the scriptures. It is the story of the Bible. Ever since the garden, ever since when the first man and woman walked out on the God of life, in came death. And so as you read through the Bible, you see sin and death tied up together. And death is an imposter. Death is not natural. Death ought not be there. It is right to rally against death. It is right to shed tears. I think that's worth remembering because... Interestingly and strikingly in our culture, sin and death are not really seen as problems. The world increasingly tries to turn that on its head. And so death, for example, you get funerals and there's this, this jarring juxtaposition of tears and mourning and sadness and, and grief. People pouring out their hearts and then some aunt stands up and reads a poem that says, death is nothing at all. It does not count. I've only slipped away into the next room. Nothing's happened. Everything remains exactly as it was. I am I and you are you. And the old life that we live so fondly together is untouched, unchanged. Whatever we were to each other, that we are still. With sobs in the background. It doesn't make sense. Death is nothing we lie to ourselves. There we are, proverbial ostriches, head in the sand. We don't let our minds go there, but I'm yet to meet a person really who believes that death is nothing. It's a cruel truth to peddle. Jesus didn't believe it as he wept at the grave of Lazarus. Paul didn't believe it as he rallied against the death of the body. Death is an imposter. It, it is unnatural. It is okay for us to feel that. It's right to mourn and to grieve, but society seeks to turn that on its head because we can't control it, so we pretend it doesn't really matter. The similar story for sin, I think. The story is peddled that sin doesn't bring death, sin brings life. Go your own way, have life, don't be restricted, get rid of the shackles, push the boundaries, enjoy yourselves, as long as you're not harming anyone else too much. Just do it. Again, that's not found to be quite true somewhere down the line. What you thought would bring life and happiness and joy ends up disappointing and we feel sad and disillusioned and, and embarrassed and unclean. And you see, sin leaves us feeling unclean because sin has left us unclean. I don't know if you find this often when I come to church. 
um, and we start our service, and we come in and we, we sing perhaps of God's majesty and his power and his love and his goodness and his glory. And often for me, the contrast is between a God like that and me like this. He is so good, but I'm not. Maybe things I've said or thought or, or done that morning even, and the whispers are there, the questions, what right do I have to stand among a people like this and sing those words? What right do I have to sing to this kind of a God? What right? And the answer, naturally, none whatsoever. None whatsoever. But here's the thing, as the passage continues, the Lord provides the means by which we can be made clean again. Have a look down, verse 17 to 19. For the unclean person put some ashes from the burned purification offering into a jar and pour fresh water over them. Then a man who's ceremonially clean is to take some hyssop, dip it in the water and sprinkle the tent and all the furnishings and the people who were there. He must sprinkle anyone who has touched a human bone or a grave or anyone who's been killed or anyone who has died a natural death. The man who is clean is to sprinkle those who are unclean on the third and seventh days, and on the seventh day, he is to purify them. Okay, so, so there's a death. And then you need a ceremonially clean person. Not even a priest seems to be needed. And they're to take some of the ashes of the red heifer and all the stuff that we burnt earlier. They're to add some water. They're to dip in some hyssop. And they're to sprinkle the tent and the furnishings and all the people affected on, on the third day and the seventh day. And the seventh day, then they're purified. So you see what's happening? We've got no new sacrifices needed. We've got no more ritual, no more bloodshed. They have instant sacrifice, instant cleansing when they need it. The, the ashes we've got from earlier mix with water. And then it's ready to clean things, to make things pure again. Is genuinely just add water. You'll, um, you'll forgive me for slightly lightening it, but you've got the equivalent of instant coffee. I'm not Matthew Weston. I'm not an utter coffee snob, but I'm a bit. <laughs> and I generally can't cope with a cup of instant coffee. I'm not even sure it's coffee, to be honest. But look here, you have got... This is Illy coffee. If you're not somebody who speaks coffee, this is pretty good coffee. And now, if time is short, you don't need to go through the relative hassle of filter, filtering or, or plunging or aeropressing or whatever it is you do. You just add water. And it'll be more than sufficient. And you've got a great cup of coffee. Well, so it is with the Israelites. Now, if they need a sacrifice, which can be potentially expensive and time-consuming, and for a normal family would be a very, very big deal, now they can simply add water. There's already been a death. And now they are clean because of the sacrifice of another. And so do you see, as the pages of, uh, of Scripture turn, and as we reach Jesus, why we need chapters like this, why we need the first half of the book, why we can't afford to ignore it, because without chapters like this, we don't quite get what's going on. We don't see that God has taught his people in the wilderness 
what it means to be friends with him, what it means to be unclean and clean. And so God has taught us how to understand the death of Jesus. And so come with me to Hebrews 9. And we're in verse 13 to 14. If you've got a Bible like me, it's page 1207. And the writer to the Hebrews, this letter, sermon, that's going on there. He zooms in on the kind of verses we've been in for this morning. I'm just going to read to us from verse 13 and 14. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them, so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? Set in the middle, start of verse 14, how much more? Jesus is so much better. The red cow and the red stuff for a time were, were to make an unclean people clean again. Ceremonially clean. Clean on the outside. But here's the big problem. Here's the problem. As with Lady Macbeth, the problem is not so much on the outside. The problem's on the inside. The problem is within. And that is why Hebrews 9 matters so much. Because Jesus cleanses us within. That is why Christ's sacrifice is such good news. I don't think I'm reading too much in or over-allegorizing or overstating it to say this. But as we have Numbers 19 in one hand. And we have... The cross of Christ in the other. Maybe we're to look to the redness of the sacrifice, the heifer, the cedar wood, the scarlet wool, the blood burnt. And we're to remember blood, and so we're to remember the blood of Christ shed for us that cleanses us from within. Maybe we're to look to the unblemished nature of the heifer, and we're to remember that Jesus' body, his bones were not broken on the cross for us. Maybe we're to look to this heifer slaughtered outside the camp. And we're to remember that Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make his people holy through his own blood. Maybe we're to see that the death of the one animal was sufficient for many. And so we're to remember Christ's death on our behalf, which cleanses many. Maybe we're to see that as the priest conducts this sacrifice, makes himself unclean so that his people might be clean. We're to remember that Jesus became unclean for us so that we might be clean within. Maybe we're to see that once the sacrifice was made, no other priests are needed to make the people clean. And we're to remember the great high priest, who was not only the, the one who performed the sacrifice, but the sufficient sacrifice for the sins of his people. And now we don't need priests. Maybe we're to see that this sacrifice was for God's people and for those residing among them, 
verse 10 of Numbers 19. And we're to remember that, that Jesus' death is sufficient for those who are near and for those who are far off. His death was sufficient for everyone. And so do you see why it's so dangerous to get rid of the Old Testament, to, to just kind of skip over Numbers 19 type passages? Because it's there that we find the framework and the pattern and the ideas and the concepts that help us understand why Jesus died on the cross. It's why John can write in his first letter, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And not just on the outside, but within. A death that deals with everything. So friends, I want to say, if you're here this morning and there's something in your past, there's something that hangs over you, there's a feeling of uncleanness, maybe it's just something you keep to yourselves. Maybe it's something you've never told anybody else about. I want you to be completely assured that the blood of Jesus cleanses you utterly from sin. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are astounded, utterly astounded by the sufficiency of the death of your son. Thank you for these chapters, these ideas, these concepts that help us then to grasp who you are, who we are, and who Jesus is and why we need him. We thank you that he was the great high priest prepared to become unclean for a people like us. But we thank you too that he, he wasn't just the high priest, he was the sacrifice for a people like us. Thank you that he cleanses a people like us forever. Thank you that his blood is sufficient. Thank you that he is kind and gracious and good. Father, you know the reality of our hearts. You know how, how difficult we find it. Perhaps to feel forgiven, to feel clean. And so we pray that you would help the, the truths we've just heard, the truths that we're just about to sing to hit home. That we might know before you, because of the blood of Christ, we are utterly clean forgiven because we are found in him in his name we pray amen